Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 10th September with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb spoke with Xavier Roussel, Sustainability and Marketing Director at Dole Foods. They had a wide-ranging conversation which includes consumer engagement and how this is evolving and the rise of ecosystem services and highlights are coming up a bit later. And as we gear up for Innovation Forum's biggest event of the year, the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference at the end of November, earlier this week I spoke with event director Narnie Brook adil about what to expect and who's attending. That's all to come. First, some sustainable business news. The COP26 event in Glasgow creeps ever closer, and one of the big challenges, of course, is how to hold a large international meeting in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. In particular, there's been widespread concern to ensure that the voices of the Global South are heard at the crucial talks. As part of its risk mitigation strategy, the UK government had pledged to provide every travelling delegate with COVID-19 vaccination if they could not otherwise have access to inoculation. But time is running out and climate groups are accusing the UK authorities of being too slow to distribute the jabs, with the promised vaccines yet to be administered. There are mixed messages though. The UK government has countered the accusations, saying that all delegates have been contacted and that the necessary vaccines are on their way. But the clock is ticking. The concept of stranded assets is one frequently associated with oil and gas as the world transitions away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy sources. However, new research highlights that the palm oil sector may similarly have to come to terms with unrealisable assets on balance sheets. A report from think tank Orbitas says that 76% of unplanted concessions in Indonesia and 15% of currently operated concessions could become stranded by 2040 as efforts to end tropical deforestation to counter climate change continue to develop. Indonesia, of course, dominates the world's palm oil industry, growing 72% of the planet's crop. The country is the world's fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases and deforestation and clearing lands for agriculture, setting fires on peatlands in the process, are prime culprits. Orbitas says that palm oil companies with concessions on high carbon stock or high conservation value lands will have to write off 9.2 million hectares that cannot be developed if emissions commitments are to be met. And it concludes that land use restrictions will mean that companies with strong climate policies in place that eliminate deforestation in their concessions will be well placed to benefit from increasing revenues if palm oil prices continue to rise. Financing, or rather the non-financing of fossil fuel projects, is a big part of the climate crisis debate. A new report from Share Action says that banks in Europe at least are not getting out of fossil fuel financing fast enough. The IPCC says that for the planet to have the best chance of getting to net zero by 2050, net emissions need to have halved by 2030. Of the 25 banks investigated by Share Action, only three have committed for a 50% reduction in financed emissions by 2030. 12 banks of the 25 have committed to ending finance for coal power by 2030, and only seven restrict financing for companies planning to increase coal mining portfolios. This is despite the fact that 20 of the banks have long-term net zero targets for financed emissions. Significantly more urgency, it appears, is required. Mondelez International, the global chocolate and snacks business, has announced a €2 billion green bond issuance, with proceeds to be allocated to projects that enhance the company's sustainability commitments, including ingredient sourcing, reducing packaging waste, water use efficiency and renewable energy, for example. The green bond is the largest of its kind in the consumer goods sector. Innovation Forum's biggest event of the year is the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes event coming up at the end of November. 
A few days ago, I caught up with Conference Director Narni Bukadil about how the agenda is evolving and the hot topics we'll be discussing. I'm with Narni Bukadil, who's running the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference this year. Welcome back to the podcast, Narni. Hi, Ian. Great to be back. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming up at the event from the 30th of November. So, Narni, how's the conference shaping up? Really well, actually. The agenda is really starting to fill up now. We've only got a couple of speaking positions still available, so that's exciting. Our first day plenaries in particular, we've been really lucky to confirm some very senior speakers on them. We have Barry Parkin, Chief Procurement and Sustainability Officer at Mars, joining us, as well as Magdi Bacato, Executive Vice President at Nestle, and Lauren Richardson, Chief Procurement Officer at Colgate Palmolive, just to name drop a few. So I'm really pleased how the sessions are shaping up. It's really filling up now. Apart from the session you just mentioned, what other new sessions have you just added to the event? So we have a couple, maybe not new, but definitely ones that I have my eye on and particularly looking forward to. Our opening plenary to kickstart the whole conference is around COP26, what it means for landscapes, forest, nature and commodities, about policy and legislation in a broader sense as well. But we definitely aim to start with a COP26 summary and synopsis and give our audience a bit of an insight into those conversations Another panel that's always my favourite is the Pharma panel. We will, of course, be having one of these again at this conference. Continuous benefit of having these meetings online because people can join us from all over the world. So that's another key favourite of mine. And if I can put one more in, the other session I'm particularly looking forward to would be one on sustainable sourcing, our business and campaign group priorities diverging further apart. And I think this will be a healthy debate between our speakers on this one, which I always look forward to watching. It's very interesting as an attendee and provides a bit of change of pace throughout the day. Yeah, I agree with that. But yes, I totally agree that the farmer session is one to look out for. It's been really, really interesting having voices from growing communities on our conference sessions over the past year and a half. So looking forward to that one as well. Tell me a bit more about what you found to be hot on the agenda this year. And obviously, a big thing for many companies has been the ever-increasing number of them that are setting net zero targets. And of course, the outcomes from COP26, as we've mentioned. But what else are you finding that's really exciting businesses at the moment? I think it's linked to what you were saying about everyone's road to net zero. The one session that has really attracted the most attention so far, we have a plenary around what does transformational change mean in practice for key commodity landscapes? So obviously people who are working towards net zero, there's, there's a process to get there. And this session will be asking some very specific questions around the practicalities of achieving a key commodity landscape. Uh, for example, discussing the actual meaning of a transformational change or debating the timescales in which it's acceptable to undergo this change. So is 2030 a target that's just too far away? We'll look at insights into how far we currently are towards working out what a key commodity landscape is. So I think that's going to be quite a nitty gritty and detailed session that hopefully everyone can learn a lot from. And we'll be joined by Mars, Nestle and Muslim Mass for this session. So you say that 2030 is a target that's too far away as an interim target on the way to 2050, which of course is even further away. <laughs> Exactly. There's more and more pressure to get everything done now, but obviously it's going to take a lot of time either way. I think with companies putting these plans into place, they just want to know how it actually works on the ground. And that's what we're hoping to cover. I think for sure milestones are very important for the sort of transformational change that is necessary. What should attendees expect from the event then, Arnie? So this event is actually one of the biggest that we hold. So I'm expecting 300 plus attendees. The way I see this event is it's a huge learning resource. So I think when we first started the, the Landscapes Conference, it was landscape work and landscape approaches were still very new. There was a lot of interest back then, but now there's even more interest as companies are working on their own landscape approaches or landscape work. Back then, I think it was not very many people working on it. And I still think there are a lot more people that need to start working on it. But this year, it's very much about learning the actual practical details of how you put those things in place. 
I would expect delegates are probably going to, your brain might hurt a little bit after these three days. It's going to be very, very full of knowledge. The speakers joining us are experts in these areas. So I hope everyone learns a lot. And of course, we have the 12 month recording. So you can always go back and watch them and pick up on details that you might have missed live. So yeah, very, very excited. Sure, no, looking forward to it. So it's the 30th of November and the 1st and 2nd of December. Of course, you can, if you book now, you can save £150. If you book before the 24th of September, you save £150 on three-day passes. Lots to look forward to, and we'll be having some content in the run-up. We've got some webinars planned and some speaker interviews and some written pieces as well. So do look out for those on the Innovation Forum website. But Narni, for now, thanks very much. Thank you very much. The Innovation Forum team is also working on the rest of our conference programme. Coming up first in a few weeks' time, from the 27th to 29th September, is our next Future of Climate Action event, where we'll be talking about how business can tackle greenhouse gases in supply chains. We've got some great speakers and panellists joining us, including senior representatives from Kellogg, Calgate Palmolive, Alaska Airlines and Amazon. And we'll be focusing on the future of plastics, with Unilever, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Mars and many others over three days from the 11th to 13th of October. And you can save £100 in passes if you register by 24th September. My colleague Toby Webb spoke recently with Dole Foods Sustainability and Marketing Director Xavier Roussel. Among a number of topics, they spoke about some of the techniques that brands can use to really engage their consumers and how this has evolved from using PDFs to interactive QR codes and product packaging. It's a fascinating discussion. Here's Toby to introduce the conversation. Tell us about your job. I don't come across that many sustainability and marketing directors. You know, I see sustainability in communications, sustainability in public affairs sometimes, but sustainability and marketing have often been two sides of the same coin at best, <laughs> certainly on a different end of the spectrum sometimes. Tell us about the role you perform at Dole, and then let's talk a bit about your consumer communications journey. It's very typical for the, the produce industry. I started in marketing. But along the way, sustainability became such an important role. And we're coming back here 15, 20 years. Sustainability started to play a very important role in what we do. And very naturally, about eight years ago, I took on the sustainability responsibility in addition to the marketing one. It's a very unusual combination. But for us, it's two sides of the same coin. These are not two different topics. This transformation process that we have it's done through marketing and it delivers in substance all those sustainability initiatives that we are doing. It's a very logical combination for other businesses, not so much, but I think that's one of the characteristics of the fresh produce industry. Well, I think a lot of other industries would like to get there. And part of the problem is that marketing traditionally doesn't understand the complexity of sustainability or feels unable to communicate it in a simple marketing message. So let's talk about how you've been not necessarily simplifying sustainability, but using your marketing efforts to engage consumers in, in the issue. We have been an organic farmer for 25 years already. And at the very beginning of this journey, we had to convince consumers about what organic was. And they didn't know, and there was a fair amount of skepticism. And at that time, believe it or not, people didn't believe that organic products were actually organic. So they saw the labeling, but they were very skeptical about what was behind the labeling. And that's how we started initially by having to prove that our product were actually organic. So we labeled every piece of fruit with the farm code and every consumer could actually track their banana cluster to the organic farm where it was produced. And we would explain them what was organic was about, but we had to show them the PDF of the organic certification. That's how we started. 
and it was very well received. And from there, this topic just grew on us. This focus on transparency became more and more important. The journey sort of continued very naturally. And we thought, hey, you know, what we've achieved in organics, let's now extend it to conventional. So we're talking here 2010 or so. And we started to certify many of our conventional farms to Rainforest Alliance, for instance. In the 2010s, these first decades, we certified many farms. And then our initiatives, our foundation, our social work, our environmental work, we were looking for a way to show it to consumers without making marketing claims that would not be substantive. So to stay true to what we are doing, we use the same coding system. And we allowed consumers to look back, track back their fruit, back to the farm. And we showcased what effort we were specifically doing in that farm or in that country. We address the needs of every country separately, differently. Their social need, their environmental need are different. And therefore, we were able to show that sort of more local effort and through this farm code system. You started with, say, a PDF on a website and a product code, which is obviously only the most committed customer might want to really explore that. That was obviously a first round system. Where have you got to since then? Right. Of course, the PDF at the time looked okay. We're coming from that far. But of course, in 2012, we essentially moved or basically focusing on the, on the user experience. That's the marketing piece of this now. And we use Google Street View to basically have people walk the farm digitally. We were able to convince retail buyers of our effort and what we're doing, but we had to fly them out. We had to take them for a week, which wasn't possible for every consumer. Our focus was to say, well, what's the next closest experience we can deliver to a consumer? And we used that Google Street View technology where in a, sort of in a, from a subjective angle, you're able to walk the farm and you'd have an audio guided tour and you'd receive like secondary content, portraits of people walking on the farm, explanation about the practices, this whole farming world was coming to life through that Google Street View experience. That's 2012, 2013. And that was also very well received. We had about half a million of those tours or, or, or visits to our website initially. And people were already paying attention. This was initially launched in, in Northern Europe, essentially Germany and, and Netherlands. The way we could measure this is by having people stay on average around four minutes of attention, which, you know, anybody that in the website would rate as really a lot of time, if you consider people's attention span, that really delivered that organic type of experience. It's non-invasive from a marketing standpoint, like people do it on their own terms, on their own time, whenever they read it on the banana and they, oh, I'd like to see that and would come online and very low bounce rates, probably 85% of people who type the URL stayed on the page, which is very low. We had a lot of success with that initiative 2013 to 2016. And we rolled every product line, organic bananas, conventional bananas, pineapple. We rolled them out over the years. So moving the story on then, are we now to the point where we started this conversation between you and me, where I picked up a bunch of your bananas in Riga in Latvia and I saw a QR code and I thought, oh, this QR code stuff doesn't really work. It used to be really clunky and useless. So I thought, oh, I'll just point my camera at it and see what happens. And next thing I knew, I was walking around what augmented reality tour of a Colombian organic banana farm. And then I thought, wow. And then we happened to speak for a conference. And I said, well, let's do a podcast about it. And so is that the next stage of the technology of, or have I missed a step? User experience, again, on websites, the bar is constantly going up. 
So for us, it was a very natural step to integrate virtual reality. So we tried Oculus and there is all the teething issues, right? We've been all through this. You know, people had their sort of these Samsung phones and put in the Oculus and it ate your battery in five minutes. So we, we went through all this, all these issues. But now that VR is moving more mainstream, I think we are seeing definitely this as, you know, what people expect now. You want to wow your consumers. The PDF of the early days would obviously not cut it anymore. That's how we made the experience evolve. And then the technology is just the way to convey the message, but the message itself stays the same. It's, it's essentially understanding what is behind a product. And that's what we marketeers and sustainability officers want to do is we want to explain people complex realities, nuanced statements, but make them come to life with the people at the source. And that's what is driving us. So when did you make the switch from the kind of Google Street View to the VR augmented reality, whatever we call your current iteration? When did that happen? Uh, 2017, 18. As soon as those gamers sets came into the general public, of course, initially it was just a bunch of gamers. That was it. They evolved very rapidly. And then you could do it with just a one brand of phone to several brands. Initially, the most problematic issue was how to capture it, so how to film in VR. So we had to go around the plantations with the huge camera sets. Today, you can do it almost with your cell phone or a device that size. Initially, filming was the biggest issue, like how do you capture a 360-degree image? But yeah, we've gone through all those steps of improvement and looking forward to the next steps, obviously. So the marketing question is clearly, what happened? You've described some of the numbers in your earlier iteration from PDF to Street View, but now you have sort of pretty much the latest technology and it's become a lot more democratic. What's happened numbers-wise? When your CEO says to you, Xavier, why are we spending money on this? What do you say to him or her? We have this steady flow of visitors that didn't change. I think VR hasn't increased the numbers dramatically, but it just keeps us in there. The area we are focusing on, I mean, the next steps really for us is to improve on the data sites, what we are delivering from the experience. So the times when you could sort of show videos and a few anecdotal facts, there was that period. I think what we're looking at right now is to integrate blockchain, for instance, or an aggregate of data in direct relation to the product you buy. When you buy banana, now you know where it comes from, you know the farm, you may know a few facts about it. You're going to give in a lot of context about the farm itself. But the next frontier for us, and we have started to roll out blockchain or similar technology throughout supply chain, is to be able to say, well, that's my carbon footprint for this particular farm or this particular area. This is for us the next move. Being able to, thanks to blockchain, to aggregate a lot more data and fruit and vegetables are the food group with the lowest carbon footprint. No matter whether you farm them locally or far away, so they were known for nutrition until now, but when you look at the carbon footprint, very low. So that's a message we also need to communicate across. And we believe through these sort of technologies, this is how we are going to take our transparency experience to the next level. Uh, we just finished our Future of Food conference uh, yesterday for three days. And one of the points made is there are certain technologies that enable you to really check whether the health of certain species is what they're supposed to be in a pretty cheap way and it's harder for some than others there are certain things you just can't see under a canopy and certain trees that are tall enough that you can and that makes a real difference i guess in terms of working out the carbon side of things so is carbon now a big driver for you to take this forward so you can try and get towards the sort of ecosystem services side of things yes it is it's very top of our list uh, carbon water management as a farming organization right how are we dealing with climate change 
I think consumers want to hear more substantive information or messaging. They understand that companies are committed. I think many corporate are committed. You hear these goals. What we want to do is accelerate the pace and being able to communicate how this effort is, is actually materializing. So these are the type of focus we're having right now. So just summarize those numbers for us. How many consumers do you think you're engaging over what time period? Give us some sort of metric here to put it into some sort of context. It will soon be 10 years. So I think we should be close to the four or five million consumers overall. But we are going to roll this out to other markets. Uh, until now, we're mostly in Northern Europe. The European consumer was the most engaged consumer around these issues. But these are concepts we also want to roll into, into the US as we see a growing number of US consumers equally concerned. There is also potential for us to roll from a market point of view. And how do you get a sense of who exactly is looking at what you're doing? Because the word consumers is a bit like the word NGOs or the word business. It's kind of meaningless, isn't it, in a sense, that there's so many different kinds within that genre. You've got to break it down a bit. Is your average sort of viewer, a sort of everyday banana buyer like myself, who just saw it and went, oh, that's interesting, I'll have a look at it. Do you get any sense of who's looking and what they're interested in? And is there a feedback mechanism in some way? Do you hear from them to say, I think this is great or a another? You get to hear about your concept on social media immediately. What comforted us in this is that we saw people posting, posting their codes and talking about it. So I think initially, especially, that's how we measured this qualitative feedback. From a consumer standpoint, Google Analytics will tell you exactly the type of the, the profile, but it will be, of course, skewing younger because of social media user, generally speaking. There is no male, female real bias to this, but it's more sustainably engaged people who want to invest a bit of their time knowing what's behind the product. Nobody loses sleep on this, but it's, it needs to be at your fingertip. I think what people, it's, it's the way they experience a company's message. Coming back to sort of this more on your terms sort of approach to consumers where they want to know at times, and you don't know when that is going to happen and how it's going to happen. It's for them to decide. And I think that's how we turn the table here and get a, a positive interaction with the consumers because it's not us putting straight advertising. It's making content available to them on their terms. So when I saw your virtual reality tour of the organic banana farm in Colombia, I thought, firstly, this is fascinating because it's really quite compelling. It's so easy to do. But my immediate thought of someone who works in sustainability is I looked at the workers in the factory and I thought, well, how happy are these workers? <laughs> How do I understand what the social situation is in the factories as well as seeing where my bananas have come from? Is that the next stage? And, and is that a really difficult part? Because it's not like you can just immediately put a button. Well, maybe you can. I don't know. Have you had conversations about how you take consumers deeper into wanting to know? Because the danger with opening Pandora's box or giving them access to information is they can just want more and more. You can see our entire farm list, which means you could see every farm we work from. And that's, so this has been public on this website ever since 2012. So I think that opening up the part of, yeah, I'm showing this, everybody can see this, including my competitors or people around the company. That piece we passed already a long time ago. Workers' testimony, we tried to capture them through like video. Part of initially the concept, we were going to sort of podcast from the, from the farms, and, but it's, it becomes complicated and it's not these people's job. So it, practically it's very difficult to do. How do you explain the social context or how do you explain good employer relationship? And in many of these geographies we're talking about, we are the main or the sole source of formal employment. We have turnovers incredibly low. 
in many of these farms, we have a turnover of two, three percent. Now, how do you explain this through this kind of concept? It's difficult. That there you can't substitute the actual visit when you're gonna go walk the farm and meet the actual worker and speak to him or her along your way. There are limits to this, as close as, but it doesn't fully replace when you walk into a plantation the way everyone greets everyone. You're gonna you can't pass anyone without being greeted and greet back, and then you learn how to basically greet before you're greeted. This type of environment, like in the relationship, the rural community type of environment, very hard to deliver back, even over, over an immersive experience. One of the things we would like to show, we would love to show, but there is so much you can do. Real life, we experience it through the pandemic. Real life experience is hard to beat. Yes, absolutely. But at least you're giving a flavor, no pun intended, of what the supply chain looks like. And that's admirable. We are seeing company communications on these things evolving. Nestle have done a thing called Beneath the Surface, which is about dilemmas in sourcing, which shows the choices that they have to make and what the ramifications are. And we're really starting to see good use of technology now. But I suppose the bigger question is, you can do all this great communications and show these consumers an organic banana farm, but, but so what? I mean, what do you want them to do and what would constitute a positive impact other than them saying, Gold Foods seem like a pretty transparent company? I think we have many communication challenges. One of them is this very sort of opinionated field that we are experiencing. People think that way and then they clash. We as a company that is on both sides of organic agriculture and conventional agriculture, there is much we would like to convey on what the ones are doing and the others are doing. In our companies, people have moved positions. So we have people working alternatively in one and the other. There is this kind of challenge we have in bringing the facts to them or complexities to them, which the social media arena is oversimplifying at all times. And, and it's very difficult to be heard saying, well, conventional agriculture is maybe not what you think. It has moved a lot. All these nuances, all these facts, we as a company have this duty to bring them to the consumer for them to make choices and understand why don't we go 100% organic? Well, you know, climate change is hitting us in some places and it's very difficult. But what is being done in conventional? What have we learned from organics that we've transferred? We don't want to be one more just opinion. We want to be a, the people on the ground doing things like making that transformation happen and report back to the consumer about the success and the challenges of the journey. Do you ever worry that the profile of organic as a simple solution to complex problems hinders promoting conventional as in any way sustainable? Organic has its own set of challenges. We have almost optimized the amount of organic we do because of the organic growing in areas where there is low pressure of pest and disease, but there is also usually lower water availability. So this kind of challenge we need to explain. The management of the water resource overall, it's important. Organic may continue to grow as we make better use of the water, better use of the resource. But bananas originally grew in communities where there is a lot of rainfall. Costa Rica gets four meters of rainfall a year in some areas. These communities should continue to grow bananas. We should thrive on both fronts. What we want to say is we, we don't want to oppose these two kinds of farming methods. We want to make them learn from each other, precision agriculture versus more organic methods, and try to get the best of both as opposed to being the one or the other. What happens next? What's your plan for 2022, 2023? Is it more of what you're doing right now or 
what else will we start to see from you in terms of consumer engagement in transparency and the, the journey you're on? Our focus is really to accelerate the journey. And so we all see these long-term goals. Many of our consumers would like to see shorter term goals. So what we're working on is really to accelerate the journey. But for this, we need the entire supply chain to come together. We need consumers, retailers, producers to align because this journey needs to be organized, it needs to be financed. And this transformation takes the entire supply chain to align. So we are in intense discussion with our retail customers to see what else can we bring to the market? How can we engage more sustainability conscious consumers into the products we can bring to market? So it's, it's really that journey that is keeping us busy for the next two, three, five years. So just to clarify, you'll be expanding what you've learned from bananas, applying what you've learned to other of your fresh fruit and vegetable products. Is that right? It's the long-term goal. Each product has its own set of challenges. We farm in very different areas in the United States, down to Chile, up to all the way to India. So there are very many different challenges. The banana is the most iconic fruit. So this is where the consumer is more educated to receive that type of messaging and curious about the information. It is a very different fruit on its own, very iconic. Other fruit kinds will follow over time, yes. Well, I look forward to hearing about that in the future. Xavier Roussel, Sustainability and Marketing Director for Dole Foods, thank you so much for your insight on the podcast today. Thank you, Tobias. And I'm delighted that Xavier Roussel will be joining us as an expert panellist at the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes event at the end of November. Don't forget to go to the Innovation website too for all the usual analysis and interviews and do look out for the first in a new series focusing on the run-up to COP26. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.